Hi everyone, welcome back to our breakdown of Mahler's 8th Symphony. Today we're doing the massive second part based on the final scene of Goethe's Faust. Goethe's possibly the most famous uh, German author, poet, and Faust is, is considered by many to be his magnum opus. Almost every child who goes through German school has to, has to read some Goethe, and Certainly he was one of Mahler's all-time favorite authors. Goethe was in the same circle as people like Schiller and Herder, these, these early German romantic philosophers, writers who Beethoven was associated with and later other Austro-Germanic composers. And so it's natural that Mahler was drawn to this particular text. The actual last scene of Faust that he set to music here which we briefly touched on in the first part of our breakdown, um, is a little ab abnormal in the context of what we've heard so far, which was a, a Latin hymn, Veni Creator Spiritus, totally different style of, of text, style of, of poetry from a thousand years later. This is um, steeped in, in German Romanticism. It's kind of mystical. And I'll, I'll just briefly describe the, the setting for this final scene. It, it specifies in the play mountain gorges, forest, cliff, desert. And we open on this kind of, yeah, this maybe slightly eerie, mysterious mountain forest scene. Uh, it's a highly evocative scene. I, I, and listen, I'm not a literary expert or a Faust expert, I tried to, to look a little bit into, um, do a little research on this, this, this final scene, especially for this, because as I mentioned yesterday, I have read Faust part one, but not part two, which is incredibly dense and, and, and a challenging read, um, at least, uh, from what I hear and what, what it appeared to be cracking it open and looking at this, this final scene. So I'm not going to claim to really know anything substantial about about this portion of the play. What I will say, though, in, in doing some research is that, you know, the character of Faust is really not a particularly good guy. He's not really a model citizen. Faust is always striving for more and more knowledge, which is, I think, uh, a positive thing in, in Goethe's setting, but in doing so, he does a bunch of really, really terrible things. And so... It's weird that this final scene is ultimately a scene of redemption for Faust and a very religious scene of redemption where he gets carried up, his soul gets carried up into heaven and is, is saved. There's an enormous amount of Christian illusion in this, in this scene by, uh, by Goethe and Goethe was known to not be a particularly Christian person, if at all. And so this is a little perplexing to a lot of commentators, and it, it struck me. It struck me as so uh, so fitting that Mahler would choose this scene in in that context because some people I, I I kind of read and listened to suggested that the redemption here of Faust is in some way somewhat ironic. I mean, it's like a happy ending to such a tragic story. Uh, it can only be parody or or irony. 
And that is so fitting, as we've seen, with, with so much of the music of Mahler. As one of our guests so eloquently put it, in joy there's always pain, and in pain there's always joy. Um, and so we can keep that in, in the back of our minds as we, as we dive into the music and the text that it follows. Uh, and, and just, you know, it, it seems uh, from, the, from the surface that Mahler really viewed this as a sincere text. That's what I see in the music because it's overwhelmingly optimistic and positive, but we, are, we never really know with Mahler. And so we can have a little bit of that interpretive lens in the back of our minds as we go through this. Is, is this supposed to be an ironic salvation or, or not? Much like the heavily Christian infused salvation of the second symphony and we'll see numerous numerous parallels to the second symphony starting with the key which we've already mentioned which is e flat major this is the key that we ultimately arrive at towards the end of the second symphony which is Mahler's resurrection key and indeed this whole symphony and the second part focuses on this key of e flat major so let's dive right into the music Normally, we try to do something of a formal breakdown uh, of these pieces because that gives us a lot of clues into Mahler's intentions. The form of this uh, last movement is almost impossible to describe as anything other than just something that follows the action of the story. Uh, to, to clump this into, people have tried to clump this into, oh, it's kind of a four-movement symphony of its own. Uh, kind of a continuous symphony. There's, there's been numerous attempts to analyze the form. I really think that uh, misses the point. Really, it's this is some of the most vivid kind of text painting, as we call it in music, that Mahler ever did. The form is determined by the actual scenes and events that unfold in the text. So we'll go through and I'll point out some of those scenes in text as we, as we listen. So as I mentioned, we open on this mysterious, dark forest, mountainous scene, and let me play for you the opening of the second part, some of the most vividly picturesque music that Mahler ever wrote. To me, a lot of the music of this second part doesn't really sound Mahlerian like so much of it, so many of his other symphonies really quintessentially do. Here's the opening of, of the second part, this, this dark forest mountain scene. start with this big orchestral interlude to set the scene. It lasts about 10 minutes. By the way, I'm going to include a uh, recording in the, in the show notes as we've done in a couple other uh, of these episodes, and I will give you various timestamps throughout so you can kind of follow along if you want to in this recording so it's clear where in this massive, massive piece I'm talking about. Um, so this is, but we have about a 10 minute long orchestral interlude to set the scene for us. 
And in the middle of this interlude, we hear this, it, it unfolds in kind of an ABA structure. We get a lot of this bleak music, but in the middle we hear a little moment of passion. And I want to play you that, uh, that moment. And we, I mentioned on our previous episode that for me, through my own interpretive lens, much of this symphony is autobiographical or um, kind of a summary of Muller's work to date. And so there's an enormous amount of self-quotation, self-reference. And I want you to listen to this B section of this opening orchestral interlude, and I want to point out where, where he's taking his, his ideas from here. dramatic, what's called a quintuplet, where we fit an abnormal number, five notes into one beat. Normally we fit two or four notes into a beat, so we hear this five. And because it's a quintuplet, I only mention that because it really sticks out to us. And it immediately calls to mind another famous quintuplet that Mahler wrote that is you, if you're steeped in the music of Mahler, you'll immediately recognize because it's so notable when it happens the first time. This is in the last movement of the third symphony. And as I've alluded to in the, in the previous parts breakdown, the ultimate message of this second part of redemption in Faust comes from love. And if we remember the idea of love, eternal love, all of these really uh, kind of abstract concepts in a way, but if we remember back to the third symphony, the end goal of that entire symphony, this big ladder of cosmological arrangement was, the last movement is called What Love Tells Me. And so to quote the last movement, we immediately get this semantic clue that Mahler, this, this movement is also going to be concerned with the same issues of, of love. Let's listen to that passage from the third movement. Uh, from the third symphony, we'll hear the exact same quintuplet that we hear here. symphony quote actually again and then we come to the end of the orchestral interlude and we hear the first entrance of the choir and these the first entrance of the, the choir serves many functions over the course of this piece in this first scene the choir are singing as anchorites religious recluses hermits who are scattered along this mountainside again a very vivid image 
and we hear the choir, it's a fantastic effect. You hear them sing so quietly, still painting this picture of what the scene is going to look like for, for the majority of this part. So here's when the choir first enters. This is about 33 minutes into our recording. Have no fear. The recording includes both the first and the second part, so only about 10 minutes into the second part, but 33 minutes into our recording. Choir is painting, the, the text they're saying is just kind of still painting this picture. I encourage if you want to follow along with the text, it can be found online. Translations are all over the place. Worthwhile to do just so you know what's going on in the action, because I'm going to skim a lot of it here. But then we come to our first real, if you want to call it plot development or action, and we hear the character of Peter Ecstaticus, the ecstatic Peter. There's all of these characters through this that are kind of, uh, it's quasi-biblical figures, random characters that are inserted into the story. And this particular character is, it's specified that he's floating both above and below. So there's a huge amount of mysticism in this text, but he's just singing kind of ecstatically about love. He's the first real character we, we encounter here. And of course, we're, we're going to start in the key of E-flat major, which is going to be one of the main keys of this second part. So here is the first enter entrance of, of a character, a real character, Peter Ecstaticus. <laughs> that's almost hymn-like or religious, sung by this first character. Uh, the first of many passages that Mahler writes that are that seem like almost sacred music. Then we, we come to the end of this first uh, character's hymn, and the last line is something about eternal love, and we transition to the next character, a character named Pater Profundus, Profound Father, He's also going to wax about, he tells this long parable about the, the parallels between nature and love, how love is like a, you know, erupting chasm of a, a bunch of uh, flowery language about the connection between nature and love. But importantly, when we hear this word eternal love from Peter Ecstaticus, and we transition to this next character, we hear for the first time the Veni Creator Spiritus motif from way back at the beginning of part one. And I want to play that for you because we're starting to hear these connections between these parts, and somehow we're supposed to start connecting those ideas of love that we heard in the Latin text to what we're hearing, seeing here in this very vivid, uh, totally different scene of the, 
ending of Goethe's Faust. So let's listen to a little bit of that passage and, and Pater Profundus's entrance. Profundus's long, you know, poetic waxing about the connection between nature and love, we hear him sing something very similar to this. Which is quoting the, the Adagietto from the Fifth Symphony, again, another really famous piece of music that Mahler wrote about love, about his own wife, Alma, and then at the 44-minute mark in our recording, we come to the entrance of the angels, a choir of angels and young boys. And here's the first moment where we, we deal with Faust potentially being saved. And here is music that has again been taken from the first part. So let's listen to the entrance of this, this choir of, of angels and young boys singing about Faust being saved. Let me actually give you just a little bit of that text. They say, Saved is the noble limb of the spirit's world from the wicked. Whoever striving takes pains, him he can would redeem. And so they're trying to, they're bringing Faust's soul to heaven and, and in an attempt to take him to the place where he will eventually be saved. So here's that music that quotes way back to the the first part, as we've seen many times already in, in the second part. this first choir of, of young angels, we hear a transition to more young angel choir singing a lot more about them succeeding in, in finding Faust's soul and, and a bunch of more flowery language. But importantly, we hear this anticipation of a future section uh, played by the brass. And so I'll play you this section and the transition to the next section of music, which is again another choir of different young angels, more flowery language here.
So we hear the brass play this figure. And that's gonna, again, become more of a thing later, but we get a little foreshadowing as we so often we do in Mahler before this, this next choir of young angels. So then we come to uh, uh, an important moment in this, this piece where as we get to yet another choir of more perfect angels, we, we start talking a little bit about in the text about more kind of elements of earthly remains, the fact that the, the body is not pure, and the idea that love is what can divide the body from the soul and ultimately allow the soul to come up to heaven. Again, really abstract, weird concepts. I'm not going to try to dive into those. But importantly, at this moment, we hear, uh, we get the Veni Creator theme. And then, interestingly, we hear some more music that's, that's very familiar. We hear the music of Inferma Nostri from the first section, which, if we remember, was this kind of pessimistic music about, again, kind of the corruption of the body. And this is an important passage, again, referring back to a different element of the first part. So I'll, I'll play this for you as well. music. We had this solo violin there too, playing this, this odd tune that sounded, as I pointed out, eerily reminiscent of the, the nightingale, which we hear right before the moment of, of judgment in the second symphony. And so I think this is evocative of that in addition to, you know, referring back to the first part, which in turn was referring back all the way to the second symphony. We also get another passage Later on, where we refer back to the first part, which was again referring back, we get a passage where that is basically mirrors exactly the music of where we heard the Adagietto quote for the first time. So we're getting more of these breakthrough moments, if we want to call them that, as we've been referring to them in previous uh, breakdowns, looking back as a kind of memory to what we've heard before, and in this case, also looking back to, to prior symphonies. So then we come to an, a choir of, of uh, younger angels. We've had many choir of younger angels. They seem to just get younger and younger and younger. Um, but importantly here, this is around 48 minutes, 50 seconds in our recording. 
these angels are in heaven and they see Faust coming and this is kind of anticipation music and we get to hear the glockenspiel for the first time in a moment that's highly reminiscent of, again, looking back, our fifth movement of the third symphony, What the Angels Tell Me. That was the first time we were introduced to a boys' choir in Mahler's music, and here we hear it again, again with the same glockenspiel, celeste, the same type of scoring that Mahler clearly associated with this kind of heavenly music, a celestis music. So here's our probably fifth at this point choir of of young, different young angels. similar to the music that we had anticipated a few minutes ago in that in that brass section we hear it in a slightly different form here and interestingly we're introduced very shortly after this to another character dr marianus yet another one of these kind of odd characters that that makes an appearance in this scene and dr marianus to start actually is singing in, in Mahler's setting kind of this accompanimental role to the choirs. That's not a very common phenomenon to have a soloist accompanying choirs. Uh, but Dr. Marianus is instructed to be, the kind of stage instruction is that he's in the highest, purest cell. And then he eventually emerges as, as the soloist, and we'll listen to that in a moment. But he's he's singing about something called the it's translated in many different ways, eternal feminine or eternal womanhood or something like this. And this is a concept in Goethe that, that, you know, emerges in this final scene. And I can't, I don't really know what to make of it. Certainly it's steeped in kind of the, the gender roles, gender dynamics of a much earlier time, 19th century Europe. But it's this idea that uh, there's a connection between femininity and kind of contemplation or uh, the, the idea that, you know, the the female, in the, in the case of Faust, Gretchen or others, is kind of the more domestic of the two gender roles. The man is all about action and striving. That's what Faust represents. But actually this, this, con- this contemplative... Uh, gender role is actually the the key to unlocking salvation. So hard for me to make make head or tail of that and to to wade through you know maybe potential levels of misogyny and abstraction and everything that's involved in there but regardless it's a concept that is important to this piece so so we might as well be familiar with it and that's what Dr. Marianus is kind of waxing about here and then importantly he comes to the forefront and let's listen to some of his music when he actually takes front of the stage and starts singing by himself
here, Dr. Marianus is actually singing to what's uh, an important character that will make herself uh, known at the very, very end of this whole big symphonic saga, Mater Gloriosa, who's the, the glorious mother, maybe connected to kind of this idea of the Virgin Mary, um, but Mater Gloriosa is what represents this kind of eternal feminine, whatever that may be, and he's asking her to approve of Faust here and to save him. So it turns out that in a way there's, I, I've even read some things that, you know, the, the traditional likeness of God is that of a man, but in Faust's worldview, the likeness of God is actually a woman and that's who's doing the saving and, and, uh, everything else, uh, uh, that that's involved with, with God's daily duties of all of these, these people, including Faust. And so that's, that's who, who Dr. Marianus is invoking here and, and singing to. And very importantly, we hear the key, not of E flat major now, but the key of E major, which as we've talked about is the key of, of love for Mahler. And so no coincidence that the first time this Mater Gloriosa is invoked, Dr. Marianus is singing about love and also this concept of the eternal feminine. We hear this in E major. So then uh, we, I want to hear just one little section from the tail end of this, uh, this, this whole section, big si uh, portion of music with Dr. Marianus, where he joins with the chorus and they invoke this, this Mater Gloriosa together and... They say, virgin, pure and fairest mind, mother worthy of reverence, our chosen queen, equal to God. So maybe not God, it's unclear, but equal to God. Here's that, that final portion of this, this scene. slips back into E flat major, our other primary key of this, uh, this symphony. The chorus sings again more of the same kind of ideas, uh, asking the Mater Gloriosa to, to save Faust, but also mentioning a couple of things that are important, you know, in this kind of worldview, or at least view of, of heaven, what, what goes on there. The, the chorus says, To you, the Immaculate, it is not denied that the easily seduced may come to you in consolation. Who tears apart through his own strength the chains of lust? And so it seems like in some way they're invoking, uh, they're asking for forgiveness of specifically sins that are related with love, those of seduction and, and lust and things like that. And, and in a sense, I, I think there's the idea that that true love is is the ultimate crowning accomplishment of of mankind, and that's what that's what you know people have to confess and and uh, own up to is is sins of of 
non-true love. <laughs> so we, we come to then a, another important moment. We've slipped back to E-flat major. As I mentioned, this is around 53.45 in our recording. And we're going to go again from E-flat to E major. And we hear an important transition. And I want to point out to you a, another quote that Mahler is using here. So let's listen to this, this chorus. I should mention that some of the stuff I talked about, these, these sins of, of, and chains of lust and seduction, they'll, they'll come in the chorus that we're, we're going to hear right now as well. So here's, here's the transition to some of that text, and I want to point out a little, a little quote in this transition as well. really lyrical singing melody in the violins and they play this this melody and it's funny because the two halves of that melody first we have and any music aficionados might recognize there's this very famous piece called Intermezzo from Cavaliere Rusticano, written after this, but, but you might recognize this melody. And then it continues, one of the most beautiful melodies ever written by Mascagni, maybe taken a little bit from, from right here. But then we also hear the second half of that melody. that second half of this melody is actually a leitmotif used by the, the father of leitmotifs, a composer named Richard Wagner, and I want to play for you, that's actually the leitmotif, one of the most important leitmotifs in the ring, the leitmotif of twins love. And so I want to play for you one of the many times when that comes, I guess I should explain the idea of twins love, really weird plot in the ring, but two twins fall in love with each other and they have a kid who ends up being Siegfried the hero. We don't need to worry too much about that. 
It's, it's a weird plot, but it is meant to represent true love. And so no coincidence that that's coming in this, in this symphony about love. Let's listen to that, that leitmotif from Wagner. So we hear that motif there from Wagner, used by Mahler, that a love motif that he's taken and put into this, this piece focused on love. In fact, a lot of what Mahler is doing here with these little kind of short musical ideas is very similar to Wagner's leitmotif technique, which he famously used in many of his operas and now Mahler is using in a kind of similar way to represent these ideas of love and the accende idea of ascending. All these, all these things are kind of leitmotifs in a way. So I'm going to skip a little bit of music here because we get this, this long sequence starting at about 57, 58 minutes in our recording with three uh, characters, the Magna Peccatrix, the Mulier Samaritana, and the Maria Egyptica. These kind of quasi-biblical figures. One sings a verse actually from St. Luke, one sings a verse from St. John, one sings a verse from the Acta Sanctorum, which is another holy book. And it, I, I'm going to skip some of this music because it's all very song-like and it's, it's further kind of Christian illusion. I don't know how much it contributes to our, our actual plot here, but we'll, we'll skim over that. It's great music, but, but and a little bit less important to our narrative and to the, the structure of this piece. And then we come to a moment, moment where the character of D Gretchen, who's been this the, the person that Faust fell in love with in this play and uh, ends up treating terribly and you know it, it ends up disastrously. And, but Gretchen appears here as a, as a penitent and she's actually going to ask for Faust's soul to be saved. And so we hear her appear. Uh, somehow she's she's come back. She's been gone from the play for a very long time, but she reappears in this final scene of Faust part two. And we hear her music, which sounds very naive in a way. Um, it's the first time that Mahler introduces the instrument of the mandolin, which uh, only he only uses in this one particular place. So here's here's Gretchen's music. Gretchen is singing to this character, Mater Gloriosa. She's asking for her to, to save Faust. She actually sings. She anticipates the theme that the Mater Gloriosa will sing herself. Then we hear some more blessed boys, angels, something like that. They're circling nearer, it says. And they see Faust, who's, who's coming, and they kind of anticipate his 
final arrival. And so I want to listen to this, uh, this music. It's, it's, we hear more E flat music, more of this kind of angelic music, but then we hear an important reference again, back to the first part. So I'll play a little stretch of this music so we can, we can hear that one of, again, one of our other light motifs or thematic ideas that we were introduced in, in the first part comes back here. So here's that, that moment with the, the blessed boys. continue to sing asking for Mater Gloriosa to, to save Faust and I let it play there for a sec because I wanted us to also hear this idea which if we have excellent memories and can think all the way back this was actually the second theme we were ever introduced to in the first part it comes back at the very end of the first part called maybe the Creator theme or something like that and this has come back again in the form of Gretchen singing this. So there's more and more, and more connections between the parts. She sings a little more. And then I want to play for you the very end of, of her little aria here before we get to the moment that we've really been aiming for, which is the appearance of this Mater Gloriosa. But first, let's hear the end of the Gretchen's kind of aria section of this, this portion of music because really important moment happens here as well. We hear this idea, and then it leaps up to here, but the main idea is to me eerily reminiscent, or maybe not eerily, but incredibly reminiscent of the resurrection theme from the second symphony. So this resurrection motif that came at so many important points to signify this, as it's called, resurrection, 
has made seemingly an appearance at this most important moment in this symphony as well, the moment where the Mater Gloriosa actually appears. So then we hear her sing. Um, she sings. I'm going to actually skip the music that she sings because it's a very short moment of music, and, and you'll, you'll hear her enter. I mean, the, the only text that she actually says in the whole uh, piece is, Come, rise up to the higher spheres. If he is aware of you, he will follow. So she's, she's I guess, approved of, of Faust being saved. But then we get this moment, uh, of course, great, great dramatic kind of touch there to, to have this one character that we're aiming for really only have one little moment of music. But then we hear our, our, our friend Dr. Marianus come back, and he is looking up at the Mater Gloriosa. He's prostrate in prayer, as it says. And he sings this, this uh, famous text, Blick at Alf, look up to the redeeming sight, all of you who repent. He's kind of summing up a little bit the whole idea for us. That tries to bring you to a blessed fate, that every better sense may serve you, virgin, mother, queen, goddess, be gracious to us. In a little way, kind of summing up some of, some of what this whole piece has been about, and we hear this moment, Blick at Alf, that he sings a really, a kind of new thematic idea that's, again, rising and gives us the impression that we're looking up at the, the Mater Gloriosa. passage with Dr. Marianus, I want to play you one more passage where, for me, I hear a very important, maybe the, maybe it's, it's buried and it's a stretch, but in a way it's the most important self-quotation that Mahler makes here. Let me play for you that quick passage and then we'll listen to, and then I'll demonstrate where that, where that came before in, in Mahler's, Mahler's output. catch this, but part of the reason why it's hard to catch this is because it's also hard to catch in the previous place that this appeared in, in Mahler's symphony, but we hear here, in one of Mahler's symphonies, we hear... And interestingly, we pointed it out in our breakdown of the second symphony, but we get this melody that's actually first introduced in the Orlicht movement. If we remember, that was kind of the moment of transformation that prepared us for this apocalyptic finale. And then that moment was, we heard that again as we move finally in the, in the finale of the Resurrection Symphony to the key of E flat major, the ultimate key of resurrection. 
and we hear the choir sing, we get to this final stanza that's going to be the most important stanza, Auferstein. But the two uh, soprano and alto soloists in that sing this melody. sing, let me play just the beginning again, they sing. And here we hear. Basically the exact same idea falling in a way at exactly the same moment in the symphony when we're going to get this turn finally to what will be the closing portion of this symphony. Also the most famous moment in Faust Part Two, something called the Chorus, chorus Mysticus, the mystical chorus. This comes around 1.13, an hour and 13 in our recording, so we're deep into the symphony at this point. Um, and classic Malerian fashion, he's going to combine all of the motifs that we've been exposed to at this point, and they're going to come together in this sort of apotheosis. Let me just read for you the very short text of the Chorus Mysticus. All that passes away is only a likeness. The inadequacy of earth here finds fulfillment. The ineffable here is accomplished. And then the key line, the eternal feminine leads us up. So here's finally where we get the concept of the eternal feminine, the last line of the whole play, saying that this is what ultimately leads to, leads to our salvation. So this, this chorus mysticus starts very quiet and will eventually grow into a massive, massive finale. But I want to play for you the beginning of this. And again, listen how eerily similar this is to a passage from the Resurrection Symphony, the kind of analogous passage right before we build to the final, final chorus. piccolo melody, again this kind of musica celestis moment, and let me play for you a moment in the, the second symphony finale that sounds to me just so similar to this, this orchestration, this color, everything, a great way to prepare a massive build to the, to the closing of the movement. So then we get the final build to an incredible climax. Very similar, I'm going to play for you the end of this, this symphony, a fair amount of it because so much happens. 
Um, we're going to hear so many ideas that come back. I'll play, play them for you now so that we can close by listening to this, this great ending to the Eighth Symphony. But interestingly, one thing, an orchestral ending, just like the Second Symphony, we don't actually end with the choir. The choir stops and then we get an orchestral coda. So again, something mirroring the, the end of this second. We hear this, uh, this kind of Mascagni-Wagner idea that we had mentioned before where he used the leitmotif idea of... We'll hear that come back again in very, very triumphant fashion. We will also hear, very importantly, we remember the beginning of this whole piece opened. And here, just like the one time we got at the ending of the first part, we hear. We jump way up to this high C, which is going to be, this is like that initial idea transformed into triumph. So keep an ear out for those and let's listen to the fantastic ending of this, this symphony together. Sometimes it's best to just let the music speak for itself. So why don't we end it there? I encourage you to go try to wrap your head around and listen to this phenomenal Eighth Symphony. And we will be back tomorrow with a special guest to break down the Ninth, another challenge in and of itself. And so we will uh, hope to see you tomorrow. Thanks, as always, for joining us, and we'll, we'll see you soon.